Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161 CER173, Memory, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 283, February the 3rd, 1993. <clears throat> This evening, Douglas Murray, Otto Scott, Mark Rushduni, and I will discuss, first of all, the subject of memory. Last Sunday, I preached on a text in Deuteronomy, wherein Moses told the people <clears throat> that it was urgently necessary for them to remember the past. He cited their errors, their sins in the past. He incited them to obedience by remembering their mistakes, with obedience leading ultimately to blessings. Now, Peoples without a memory, whether it's individual or collective amnesia, are only barely alive. They are incapable of profiting from the past. They are stymied in acting in the present because they do not know who they are, what they are, or what their abilities and liabilities are. We live in a time when we have been working to create a mass amnesia on the part of peoples. We want to destroy their memory in Europe as in the United States. Education has turned from the teaching of history to various uh, social studies. And with each year and each new textbook, the historical content gives way to teaching certain social attitudes so that people have very little knowledge of the past. As one uh, observer noted recently, a large number of American school students today in the public schools know more about Martin Luther King than they do about George Washington. They know very little about the basic history of this country, and the same is true in Britain and on the continent, and I have been told that France may be the worst in this respect. So we have a problem today in that the assault on memory works to dehumanize people. It makes them less strong, less able to resist a totalitarian trend because they no longer can see 
the past, present, and future. They do not really know what they are, and they have been blinded by the loss of memory that our culture has inculcated. Well, with that general introduction, Douglas, would you like to continue? Well, I looked up the definition of memory in Webster's Second Unabridged, and uh, the power or function of reproducing and identifying what has been learned or experienced, i.e. the faculty of remembering, uh, is the definition that's given there. And I think as we take a look around, as you just outlined, collectively, our culture at least, is losing its collective memory. And this seems to be a, an engineered uh, phenomenon uh, in order to institute changes to uh, uh, comply with the agenda of the power elite. And uh, it's something that has to be turned around because we're nothing if we're not the sum total of our experience. Uh, people who have amnesia, who, who get uh, um, clinical amnesia, uh, go through terrible disorientation and uh, uh, the, uh, they lose all uh, sense of self-worth, self-esteem because they have <coughs> They have no recollection of, uh, of the uh, accumulation of experience through their lifetime, and it's something that uh, each of us values, and it gives us something to, uh, to fall back on. The uh, memory as a human perception of time is probably unique to, to humans. I don't think that there's any other species that has the capability of memory. At least it has not been uh, demonstrated scientifically anywhere that I've ever seen. So it's a unique, unique human trait. I would say memory in the sense that we have because yeah. a dog will remember who you are if you're away for a while. In that sense, animals do have some kind of memory. But uh, our memory is unique. I believe it marks us because we're able to remember not just what we've experienced, unlike all animals, we can remember because of our studies everything from the Garden of Eden to the present, and that makes a world of difference. Otto, would you like to uh, comment on these uh, matters. Well, this is not uh, unique. We watched the Soviet Union deliberately erase and alter and distort the history of Tsarist Russia, the history of the entire West, for that matter. Marx studied a certain portion of Roman history, and especially the times of the Troubles. Greek, rather, Greek history. And uh, the different classes in Athens, 5th century B.C. Athens, got into a state of civil war where the proletariat fought against the aristocrats. The aristocrats, you know, the Club of Thirty took over. And Marx assumed from that 
period that this represented all history and he transferred the class struggle of 5th century Athens to describe all of Western history. Now it's obvious that the civil war in Athens destroyed Athens. And when you have a class struggle in any country, you will destroy that country because classes have to operate harmoniously, otherwise the society is destroyed. So he was idiot enough to think that class struggle explained all the progress of history instead of explaining the destruction of various countries and cities. In other words, he misread history and he mistaught history. After the Bolsheviks took over in 1917, they repeated the era of the French revolutionaries who began with the year one. And they said they were going to produce the new Soviet man. And the new Soviet man had to have his mind cleansed of all traditional information and knowledge. He had to abandon his religion. He had to abandon history as he knew it and start everything all over again. This is like saying you're going to create amnesia in a society. Then as they progressed in the 70 years of their regime, they repeatedly began to alter the record of their own behavior. A Russian encyclopedia, for instance, in 1925 had Trotsky as an ally of Lenin. The same Russian encyclopedia in 1930 had no Trotsky at all, which meant that they had to recall the 1925 encyclopedia and reprint and replace and rewrite. So what we are watching here in the misrepresentation, let's say, of the settlement of the western part of the United States and the misrepresentation of uh, the South in the period from, let us say, 1500 to 1860. The, uh, the downgrading of the colonial period, which lasted almost 200 years before we had this government. The omission of the, of the problems introduced by the Articles of Confederation, which gave us paper money and inflation all kinds of various aspects and periods of American history have been either dropped or distorted. So what we are doing here, or what's being done to us here, is very similar to what the Bolsheviks did to the Russian people. Only difference being we don't say that it's communism, we don't admit that it's socialism, which it is, and we pretend that we're doing this for scholarly reasons. Mark? Well, you mentioned uh, social studies and education. And I've, uh, today in, in our educational system, we don't teach that there's any such thing as truth because truth is seen as relative. So if truth is relative, uh, truth is subject to the mind of man, and truth only serves man's purposes. Therefore, truth has to change, truth has to evolve as it meets society's needs. So in dealing with the past, in history, for instance, history 
becomes a tool to explain a situation as you see it today. Uh, history is not something you learn from. History is something you, you use to explain truth as you see it today. Therefore, one of the most honest things they did was they replaced history with social studies because the purpose of social studies is to look at society and draw lessons for that from society and to influence the new generation in how they should behave and think in this new society. So I think eliminating history from the curriculum and calling it social studies is one of the more honest things our modern educational system has done. Yes. Otto referred to what the Soviet Union has been uh, up to over the years, and I suspect it's still continuing because their basic philosophy has not changed, namely rewriting <coughs> history. I've referred at times to the fact that they've attempted to perform a lobotomy on all the peoples within the Soviet Empire by destroying any connection with the past through language so that they have systematically worked to alter the many, many languages within the old Soviet Empire by creating new words, by dropping old words to the point that they hoped to cut people off from the various Bible versions, from writers of the past like Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and others, and were approaching success in this goal. In many, many instances, the old purity of the language was retained only within a family context. You spoke the speech that was approved out in public. Well, the point of all of this uh, remaking of language was very simply to cut people off from knowledge of the past. You and I would have trouble trying to understand anything in Anglo-Saxon. It's a remote ancestor of English. But uh, English has changed so dramatically that the two languages now are very different. And this was the goal with regard to all these subject peoples. And it was done deliberately, it was done systematically, so that every periodical regularly introduced new words which were explained, and then went on to use those new words and the new words previously given to the point that Peoples in the United States who subscribe to, say, a Russian, a Ukrainian, an Armenian, a Georgian, or any other such periodical, would have trouble reading what came from the old country.
The goal was the loss of memory. Well, technology is beginning to change people's uh, perception of uh, the value of memorization because electronically you can store huge amounts of information and also you can get rid of it very quickly. It can be uh, dumped or erased very, very quickly. Young children now in preschool in public school system are being introduced to computers and uh, it develops in them the the sense that uh, this device, the computer, is just an electronic file cabinet and they begin to see their own brain as just a file cabinet that you periodically clean out and throw away what you don't need and uh, it's, a, it's a subtle similarity, but I think it, over time it changes people's perception of the value of remembering who you are, what you are, and your cultural identity. Um. Well, <clears throat> the Bolsheviks were the ones who stopped the teaching of history in Russia when they took over and introduced social studies so that when we introduced social studies in the American educational establishment, we were taking a leaf pure from the Marxist adventure. Uh, and the Bolsheviks learned it from John Dewey, <laughs> so that it went there and came back. When did the social studies really start in earnest in the public school system in the United States? It depended on the area. Some states adopted it very early. Others resisted it until after World War II. The more money a district had, the more readily it adopted social studies. I remember that no one placed any value on the social studies texts after, no. after they <coughs> passed the class, they immediately got rid of the book. Well, there's another point here, and that is that we can, we needn't blame the Marxists for everything. Science, the scientific community, the technologists, were the first to discard history. They discarded history because as soon as they found a better way to do something, they threw out all the things that it improved. And they threw out with this the memory of the struggle that they had to go through in order to attain a better level of technology. So technology is taught to students today as an accomplished fact, not a historical development. It, the average engineer knows nothing about how these things were evolved and has the assumption, he's taught indirectly, that the past was stupid because it didn't know how to do things as well as we do with them today. And this attitude has flowed into commerce because business histories, for instance, the, uh, an awful lot of men in senior management can't see the point to a business history. They can't see the point at all until it's pointed out to them that 
at least the history of the company can prevent them from repeating some of the mistakes of their successors. Predecessors. Or predecessors, yes. But the attitude of contempt toward history, because the assumption is that if they're smart, why aren't they alive? They must be dumb or they wouldn't be dead runs through the American nation. And uh, to an extent, I think we were taught that. We were taught that the world began in 1776. We were taught that the men in Philadelphia invented everything they did, that they had no background of information from their upbringing and their training and their historical knowledge, that it was a miracle that occurred in Philadelphia. And that this is a miraculous country because it has no history that connects it to any other part of the world or any other period. You, you mentioned about science. Uh, Darwin basically threw out all science before him and its, and it, and its basis of validity from a, a, a creationist perspective. And most all of the great disciplines of science were originated by Christians. In fact, modern science didn't even originate as we know it until after the um, uh, Protestant Reformation when men said, um, God, if God created this world, it must make sense. And there must be laws which we can understand because if, uh, if God created it, there must be principles which we can understand if we're in the image of God. And they created the various disciplines of science and the scientific knowledge you know, began exploding. When Darwin came around, he said, all that is nonsense. Everything is chance. There is no uh, order except uh, random uh, mutations and chance occurrences. We don't even, as my dad wrote a long time ago, they don't really, he doesn't, didn't really believe in a universe. He believed in a polyverse because there was no common law. You mentioned Darwin. <laughs> I was interested in uh, Insight, January 18, 1993, this statement by Jameson Summey. Of the two theories, evolution seems to require more faith. Because of the ubiquitous gaps in the fossil record, the complete lack of harmony of evolution with the second law of thermodynamics, and the seemingly preposterous idea of an incredibly complex self-replicating cell pulling itself together from a primordial suit, unquote. With shoes. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, without an historical memory, we lose the ability to think. We don't have a knowledge of the past. And our knowledge is pretty largely eroded. I saw that rather dramatically when Otto Scott wrote a while back on the great flu epidemic of 1918-1919. That created a shock in many, many quarters across country. People between the age of 20 to 55 simply had never heard of that great flu epidemic and the fact that was it two more weeks at the same rate of 
increase, it would have wiped out the human race out of... Something like that. Yes. All right. Uh, one person told me that he went to some work to go to the library, a large library, and uh, look up uh, influenza and find that there were two or three books on the subject to get them out and read them with some dismay that so great an event with such far-reaching implications and so tremendous a death toll was unknown, that nobody wrote about it, nobody taught it in history courses, and he was confronted with it in an article by Otto with a sense of shock. Now, the fact that uh, the Beatles are known by many schoolchildren in Britain better than Churchill tells us something of what has happened to our historical memory. And it's a rather grim fact, a very, very dangerous one because people, well, I've forgotten who it was, it may have been Disraeli, who said that those who do not know the past are doomed to repeat it. Santayana. Santayana, yes. Disraeli said, practical men are men who practice the blunders of their predecessors. That's true. It's very interesting. The American contempt for history is what has led us to our present problem, especially in the area of uh, currency. We have no fixed unit of currency. Now, even savages develop a fixed unit of currency. And here we are priding ourselves on our advanced state of knowledge and we have the record. I have a book at home, 2,000 Years of Price Controls. Yes, I have that. By Schuttinger. Excellent. It's an excellent book. And uh, in 2,000 years of price control efforts, every single one has been disastrous. Yes. They're talking about them again. They're going to control health care prices. And of course, that'll run. It won't run to a shortage of sicknesses, but it'll run to a shortage of cures pretty soon. Well, Garamendi's going to control insurance prices. Same thing. Same thing. First question that got asked at that meeting was, "How are you going to be insured when you go out of state with your car?" <laughs> he hadn't thought of that. Did he answer it at all? No, I didn't hear the answer. He said we're studying that. Yeah, right. We've got a group. We'll form a commission. But your comment earlier about the contempt, I think that this uh, contempt, uh, particularly in the scientific circles, for uh, prior history in a particular discipline really uh, goes to the heart of the matter because really it displays man's arrogance in trying to make himself a god. I've run across a lot of scientists in my day who are about the most arrogant human beings I've ever run across. 
because uh, nothing happened before them. Well, they're strangely uneducated. I, on the Raytheon history, I went over every scientific or, or technological detail with the chief engineer of the corporation. And at one point, he protested. And I said, well, uh, I've forgotten, of course, the issue, but he protested at some issue. And, and uh, we got into a side discussion on how much better it was to use mathematics than it was to use words. Because I said, where do you suppose zero came from? <laughs> and there was a long silence. Yes. Yes. Well, I think one of our problems today is that we are ignorant of how much we have lost just since World War II. Our knowledge of the past is eroded. Therefore, our ability, as you said, to cope with uh, price controls is gone. We don't know that it has always been a failure. By the way, I wish uh, we could know whether Garamendi's answer to driving your car out of the state is going to be, you can't do it. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past him. Yeah. Well, I haven't thought it through, I don't think. Uh, yeah. That's the, that's the problem. He just wanted to throw it out there, grab some, some TV time. Well, to tax energy, which is the, th the uh, fuel by which we operate, means that it hinders all operations. Yes. Now, to hinder all operations in the hope of getting enough money is to start to cannibalize yourself. It's like cutting off your arm so that you can continue to eat. Yes. Well, I see a pattern. You know, Europe and uh, European common market countries and the Japanese are paying uh, somewhere around 3 or $4 a gallon for gas. Here in the United States currently, it's around $1.15, $1.20. Now, when you add that with the $0.35 cent a gallon tax that Clinton's administration wants to put on and the... Uh, uh, insurance that they want to load onto the thing. In other words, they, they want to make uh, gasoline tax really a social a social uh, program because what they want to do is uh, make the people who who have money and can, can't afford insurance also pay for the people who won't buy insurance, what we now call uninsured motorist insurance, which a lot of us get charged anyway. And it's very difficult to get off your insurance policy. If you insist, you can get rid of it. But the point is that they're gradually jacking up the cost per gallon for the gas, closer to the other major uh, economic... These smaller countries. Yeah. In a review, in Lincoln Review... I encountered this passage earlier today, written by Angus MacDonald. He went to Columbia 
after World War II to study. And he says, living in New York was a delight, as there was no crime and much to see and do. Subways cost a dime and were clean. When I visited years later and saw the graffiti on the inside and outside, it was a distressing comment on what had become of the city. Stacks of newspapers used to be in Grand Central Station with no attendant. Whoever was responsible for the papers would come by once in a while and pick up his money, confident that there would be no theft. I used to eat at a cafeteria in Grand Central. After you ate, you went to the cashier who asked you what you ate. You told him, and he told you the cost. Unquote. Now, most people today are totally unaware that this kind of thing existed in this country, that it was possible in our major metropolitan centers to have law-abiding and safe environments. But with the lack of historical memory, I'm surprised how many people assume that the conditions we have today are normal. Well, if you have no memory, there's nothing you can compare them against. Yes. You simply don't believe that uh, most people are honest and most people behaved in an honest manner. Although now I understand that students cheat as a matter of course. Yes. And... uh, we know now that we have a government that tells lies as a matter of course and that breaks its promises to the people at any time without any sense of shame. And the individuals who do this are not impeached. They're not brought up on charges. And the people act as though these lies and broken promises are normal. And we are moving, therefore, into despotism because despotism is like any other kind of imprisonment. It takes two to tango. It takes one to bully, and it takes one to surrender. Well, loss of memory means a breakdown. I recall vividly some years ago performing the funeral of a very wonderful man whom I had known from the time I was about well less than two months old all my memories earliest memories he's a part of and I hadn't seen him for about a year or so, and his son, who was a good friend, told me when I expressed very real grief that his father had died, he said, it was in an accident, by the way, he said, I'm sure he was grateful. 
because he was losing his memory. And he said not long before this accident, he looked up across the breakfast table one morning in great distress and asked his wife if she were his wife and what her name was. Now that's very sad. But it's even more disastrous when a culture loses its historical memory. And that's what's happening to us as a people. And it's self-inflicted. Our state schools are furthering it. And most people are appallingly ignorant of the past of this country, of their particular part of the country, and of the heritage that is theirs in terms of their own origin, what groups of people they represented in the migrations to this country, and so on. I was startled two, three years ago when uh, someone in the deep south called me and he said, most of our public school children here either do not know who Robert E. Lee was or have been taught that he was a scoundrel. Well, the black people are being taught by some of their leaders that all the developments of ancient Greece came from black Africa that the human race began in Africa, that there were great African civilizations, yes. and that everything the white man has, he stole from the black man. Of course, one could say, why haven't you stopped inventing? Why don't you continue to exhibit your brilliance? But that's beside the point. The point is that they're being taught a cartoon version of history which is going to be very damaging to racial relations in this country and in the future. is already a great damage. is going on now on the university level. Mm -hmm. We have black studies which are dishonest. And of course there's a certain amount of dishonesty in all national histories and in all racial histories. Uh, almost every group tries to brush its scandals under the rug. I mean, every once in a while I run into somebody who represents a group that has never in all its history committed a crime. And I, I look at them, you know, and I don't, I don't make an argument about it. There's no point to that. There are also, of course, efforts to salt history, to put false records into the archives or to steal genuine records from the archives and from the files. History has become a great propaganda tool in this country. It's being used and misused to a very great extent. And in the whole process, there continues what I've mentioned before, a contempt for the value of true history, because 
if a nation commits a terrible crime or if it commits a very bad mistake, at least if it keeps the memory of that green, it will not do it again. You know, we're only allowed to remember certain mistakes. Very few, yeah. Well, I ordered a book today by a prominent scholar, the thesis of which is that history is myth. There is no truth in history. In fact, the concept of truth for him, apparently, is that uh, it, too, is a myth. And some believe that the idea of truth is a hangover from Christianity. Well, we began with the word memory, and we know that our memory tends to play false with us. Uh, I don't have the best of memories, which is the reason I take a lot of notes, but I can, many times, I decide to find a book, and I know it has a red cover (laughs) and a white title, and when I find it, it's blue and it's got a yellow title. Isn't that exasperating? It's very exasperating. I, I, I could really kick myself. But I see it in my mind's eye exactly that way, and I look for it that way. And yes. Of course, I overlook it because it's another color. And the same is true when I interview people about their careers and what they've done in their job and so forth, and I find that uh, their chronology gets all scrambled. Mm-hmm. And even with the best of intentions, they can't remember precisely the way the thing went. And then, uh, actually, some of them are very good. They'll remember that Joe did it. And then, of course, you know you're getting somewhere because they they didn't take the credit. And they will admit that they learned from somebody else and so forth. But history, I would say, is comparable. History is not precise. It's impossible for anybody to know exactly how things went because we weren't there to see the expression. It might have been a piece of business, might have been conducted with a wink, a handshake, or a nod of the head. Lots of things are not put on on paper or parchment. They leave no particular trace. But we do know that in the larger areas of human behavior, certain things have always led to trouble and certain other things have always led to success and if we overlook that then we're cheating ourselves how how is the uh, I was going to ask the best method of learning history I've always been uh, suspicious of textbooks uh, particularly college or high school textbooks that give the history of the world from A to Z in 350 pages because it generally winds winds up to be somebody's idea of what history ought to be rather than what it actually was. Uh, As a historian, uh, would you suggest to people that they get their history study from as many different sources as possible? I certainly have. And also... I ask myself when I read a description of some event, especially of the participants 
of some event, if that sort of behavior squares with the way men behave that I've seen, and for instance, the a good example of misuse uh, or misreading of behavior is our Hollywood movies. Uh, you see a man coming in, insulting a woman, and then seizing her and kissing her, and she succumbs. Now, you know that <laughs> doesn't <laughs> work. <laughs> it only works in the movie <laughs> I didn't have to try it. I was never stupid enough to try it. But time and again, this is how the hero meets the heroine in the movie. Going to be a, an airborne vase or some dishes or a left uppercut in there somewhere. Well, when I went to the University of California at Berkeley, the assault on the older education was still in full swing. It had not entirely destroyed the older schooling because the rural schools still believed in drill and in memorization. One of the things I learned from just a little bit of uh, reading was that the experimental basis for their idea that there could be no transfer of training, that if you discipline the mind in one sphere that discipline would not carry over into another sphere the uh, research there was very shallow they wanted to do away with the older drill and memorization methodology so they with a very trifling experiment or two which would never hold up today they eliminated it of course, within uh, recent weeks, a Reader's Digest article, without using the term, speaks of how you can discipline the mind and further the memory. Now, those who are brought up under the old drill and memorization methodology had a remarkable ability to give an accurate account of past events. I've mentioned more than once how my father and his classmates as small uh, boys could uh, remember verbatim the textbooks, the names and author and all, all through schooling. It, it amazed me how precise their memory was because of the drill method. And I recall some of the older historians who could, at the drop of a hat, if you brought up, uh, say, 1436, discuss events within 10, 15 years before and after and give you a picture of history at that time in Europe. They had an incredible memory and a very accurate one for details. 
I think we've suffered greatly in uh, truthfulness in speech because we don't have the background of that precision that very, very meticulous emphasis on detail. I recall a very heated argument. The heat was on my side. About uh, 30 years ago with a professor who insisted that (coughs) the new math made a correct answer unnecessary. If you had the right methodology, that was the important thing. And I learned that uh, accuracy was no longer prized. It was the ability to uh, regurgitate something of the general framework. So I think we have destroyed the memory of each generation more and more in uh, this century. Well, we've got lots of examples around of people who know the methodology but don't get the answer right. In fact, that bridge that they're rebuilding over here, Parrott's Ferry Bridge, is a great example of that. The guy who engineered it knew how to engineer, but he didn't get the numbers right. So we're going to have to spend $30 million to... Uh, beef it up so it doesn't fall in the in the river. And they are giving us no assurances that it won't. No, no, you have to pray every time you cross it. But that is just one of <laughs> one of many examples of people who know uh, the method but don't get the right answer. Well, this is a very becoming a very serious matter. I just saw the book, uh, the film rather, Malcolm X, and. You have a strong stomach. Well, this is for the compass. Uh, I know. And uh, I wouldn't voluntarily go to see it, but I think it's important because they're making an important issue of it. This is a film which Malcolm X is deliberately made to look like a hero. And I got hold of a magazine review in Fidelity. Yes, excellent. A brilliant review. Yes, remarkable. The reviewer had taken the time and the trouble to read Alex Haley's false autobiography of Malcolm X and also a true biography of Malcolm X by a man named Bruce Perry. And it turns out that far from being an admirable man, Well, let's begin with the fact that he lied about his parentage. He was a high yellow. He was a mulatto with reddish hair and green eyes. He was always very embarrassed by this because he wanted to stress the black part of his heritage and not the white. His grandmother had three children by a Scottish plantation owner in the island of Grenada, which is where the red hair came from and so on. In the course of his career, uh, not only did he tell lies about his mother and his father, but of course about himself most of all. In Harlem, he operated as a male prostitute. And in the movie, there is a segment which shows a homosexual being serviced by uh, a mulatto. And... 
Malcolm X plays the tough guy who comes in and puts this mulatto down in a game of fake Russian roulette. But the fact of the matter, according to Perry, the true biographer, is that there was no other mulatto. There was only Malcolm X, and he was the one that serviced the homosexual. He went to prison for burglary. He didn't go to prison for being a pimp. And I said in the review that I wrote, there is a difference. And you can never confuse the two between a pimp and a homosexual. A pimp uses women, a homosexual competes with them. So we have here an individual who, in a way, the biographer was sympathetic to him because he was raised essentially without a father. He was engaged in a lifelong search for a father. Each one he found was unworthy. And he also made a very important point, and that is that he became acquainted with white people who came to Harlem for vicious reasons. And also that a great many of the families in the black ghetto have no father. They are female-headed, and the boys are raised without masculine uh, example or masculine uh, advice. So homosexuality is rather common in that area. So what we come out with in the final analysis, and he also talked about Haley and his lies about his origins, and he talked about Spike Lee and his strange attitudes. And he came to a similar conclusion about all three. Now, if the movie had been truthful, it would have done a great deal to help both the black and the white communities to understand each other. But to do it falsely, to tell a total and complete lie in the, under the guise of giving a man's history would be the same as giving a lie, in this case is the same as lying about American history. And the damage is incalculable because lies bring down everything. It's the biggest, the, the, the image most people have of it, history, whatever their view about any particular history, does not go back to their high school history class goes to some image of that period of history they've seen in television or the movies. Yes. 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 And therefore, we have a generation that has absolutely no idea of our real history. That's true. Or even of our actual relationship between the various groups that make up this polyglot country. Well, the difficulty in rectifying that is that they, that uh, the, the humanist culture has destroyed the placing of any value on history. So people don't even bother to learn it because they figure it's a waste of time. Well, to not bear false witness places a very severe standard on a writer. That is no longer felt as it even uh, 
a remotely viable standard. Nevertheless, any Christian who is a yes. writer has to keep that in front of his head. Yes. Well, Hollywood has been working overtime at making apologies for a lot of people, like Malcolm X and others, letting not them off for the us. They're putting us into the other category. Uh, Hollywood is portraying uh, Christians as bigots, as sadists, as abusers of women, as hypocrites. It's an interesting contrast, and they're uh, they're not uh, propagandizing at all, are they? Yeah. And this is this is really where we live. I mean, this is a very important subject. And there has been, I think, a sort of a uh, error on the part of Christian groups who don't make efforts to redress these misrepresentations. Mm -hmm. To allow insult to go unanswered is a grave mistake. Well, I think the Christian school and homeschool movement is beginning to have an effect because it is <clears throat> bringing up a generation with a better grasp of the past. I think that's true. And it's very much needed because without it, uh, we have the idiocies of this uh, supposedly an ultra evangelical group putting out something in their publication President-elect Clinton's faith shapes his social political views and it begins by saying despite differences of opinion people may have with Bill he is a disciple of Jesus Christ who wrote that? well I don't know Did the name they sign of their name? No, uh, it's anonymous. Uh, should be. <laughs> Probably written by Bill Clinton. <laughs> no, it's uh, in the periodical Sunday, put out by the Lord's Day Alliance, which used to be ultra-Orthodox. The writer is himself a Southern Baptist, although a moderate, which means he's a modernist. But he gushes all the way through this article about the faith of this wonderful man. He must be trying to get a federal appointment to some job or something. <laughs> well, our time is very nearly over. Is there a last statement any of you would like to make? After that revelation, I, I'm breathless. <laughs> no memory there, even about what happened <laughs> as recently as last year. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ Rules. Dot com.